Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning, Candeo family. If you've got a Bible, join me in Ecclesiastes 5 if you're not already there. And uh, we're going to continue in our journey through Ecclesiastes, a journey that we started about a month ago and will continue in through Thanksgiving. And maybe you've noticed this. Um, we just did something we don't typically do here. <laughs> uh, last week, I was up here teaching Ecclesiastes 3, ended that chapter, and now we're jumping to Ecclesiastes 5, where our primary diet as a church is often to go verse by verse. We've chosen to do something different with this series grabbing on and focusing particularly on this word, habel. There's a Hebrew word here in Ecclesiastes that is used 35 times over the course of this book. Habel means meaningless, futile, empty. And what the teacher of Ecclesiastes seems to be doing is that he seems to be speaking from personal experience. He has paid the dumb tax on this one. And he's letting us know that all of these life experiences, if you pursue them in and of themselves, they will be found as hebel. They'll be meaningless, futile, empty. And so we're not moving verse by verse, but more theme to theme in the order that this book brings them to us. And to this point, we've talked about how wisdom and pleasure and work and time or Hebel, there's a meaninglessness to it, a futility, an emptiness to it, if pursued in and of itself as an end in itself. Today, we're going to talk about wealth. And here's the question I want to put before us today. How much is enough? That's the question I want you to ask yourself today. Like, how much is enough? Like, how much money would God have to put into your bank account? or into your retirement plan for you to look at it and say, that's, that's enough, that's enough. Like, how many and what kind of cars would you need to have in your garage? Would God have to place in your garage for you for you to look at God and go, that, that's, that's enough, that's enough. Speaking of garages, like how many stalls would you need in your garage? How many, how many bedrooms in that house? How many bathrooms in that house? Like what Joanna Gaines inspired kitchen would you need? Like how many square feet, how many acres would God have to give you for you to say, that's enough? Like what, what kind of shoes would you need in your closet? What, what, what new jacket do you need in your closet? Like what assortment of clothes do you need in there for you to look at everything that you have? Like what size of a walk-in closet would you need to have in life for you to say, that's enough? Now I, I know and I, you guys know I love bragging about this. Like, I know we're Iowans, right? And when God made us, he was showing off. Like, we're, we're special people. Like, we're simple people. We're salt-of-the-earth people. It doesn't take much to make us happy. We're not fancy like those people on the coast. You know, like, we, we don't need a lot, right? But still, even for us, right, isn't the honest answer, if you think through all the things I've just laid before you, you're like, ah, a little bit more. I don't know how much money I need to have in my bank account or in my retirement plan, but man, a little bit more, God, would be great. Like just looking at my car situation, our van, the miles keep climbing. There's maybe transmission issues. My car, which I call the Silver Fox, um, not reference the guy that's in it. 
No, neither of those things, not silver or fox. But um, my car, like if you start it up now, it like ticks like a bomb. I have to explain it to everybody. I'm just hoping that it lasts long enough that I can pass it off to my son and go, here, here's your first car, wrap it around a pole. I don't care. Just stay safe. But it's like, it's, it's meant to like get you here and there and whatever. But I look at it and I go, God, I, a slight upgrade would be great. Whether it's the house, the bank accounts, the clothes, a little bit more, a little bit nicer, a little bit, a little bit. And guys, you got to know, like, money, possessions, things, like those things in themselves, they're not sinful, they're not dangerous. But that mindset, that little bit more mindset is. And Ecclesiastes 5 is going to tell us why. So let's pick up in verse 8. So the first thing he says, if you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. The profit of the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. The first thing that the teacher of Ecclesiastes is telling us is if you see oppression and perversion of justice of the poor, don't be surprised. If you see people who have wealth and power, not using that God-given wealth and power as a way to pick up the lowly and elevate their state, but instead to view them as stepping stones on their way and in their pursuit of a little bit more, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. This news cycle that we see so often of, of corruption and greed, they're not recent developments. But this sin struggle was birthed the moment the first coin was minted. This is like oppression, this perversion that we see in the world. It puts the destructive nature of wealth on full display for us to see. When money is what you worship, it doesn't just take part of you. It, it takes all of you. It darkens your heart and it corrupts you to soul level. That's what greed does. Wealth can do. And the truth is, if we can see it, if you can see oppression and perversion, things motivated by greed, corruption and full display, if you can see it, know this, God can see it. One of the things that's abundantly clear as you look throughout your Bible, the Bible refers often to what is described as the quartet of the vulnerable. Orphans, widows, immigrants, and poor. Throughout the Bible, you will see the, the quartet of the vulnerable talked about again and again and again. For widows, orphans, immigrants, and, poors, and, and poor people, like the safety nets of life have like completely disappeared for them. They are in free fall and they're looking around at society going, Will anybody care for me? And any act of mercy, any act of care for the quartet of the vulnerable is an act of pure mercy because they have no ability to pay you back. God cares deeply for the vulnerable. How do we know this? Because our Bible talks about the quartet of the vulnerable and God's heart for them 115 times. In my Bible, that is one time for every nine pages of scripture. James 1.27 says this, that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. 
One of the clearest commands throughout the Bible is that those who have should care for those who don't. And one of the great tragedies of the little bit more mindset is that it hyper-focuses so much on what you don't have that you totally miss what you do have to give away to those in need. Like in our lives, we can get so preoccupied with remodeling the kitchen that we forgot the fact that there's a thousand and four orphans in our state alone, kids without homes and parents who would love a place at your dining room table and your shabby, not remodeled, not updated kitchen will do just fine. And beyond the 1,004 kids that are looking for a home and family to be adopted, there's over 4,000 in foster care. Orphans. How about widows? There are widows in your neighborhood. You get so hyper-focused on what you don't have and the pursuit of more and, and being all about what's in front of you. You miss that there are widows up and down your street, people that if you just stop by and spend 20 minutes with them, it'll be the highlight of their week. The poor immigrants, to care for them. This is how the gospel is supposed to change us as a people. Our God cares for the poor and the powerless. And that's what we are. When God found you, what state were you in spiritually, but poor and powerless? But Jesus Christ, who is rich, and all-powerful did not see those riches, that, that power is something to be exploited, something to be added onto, to be built upon, but he set it aside for our sakes became poor so that he could make us rich in him. And you cannot claim to love Jesus. You cannot claim to have come to know that type of love and it not change you to the point where you want to now align your life with his and you want to imitate him in everything that in everything you want to both proclaim the, the gospel and display it with your life. And so the great tragedy of wealth and greed is not only that it's blinding, that you don't see the needs of those around you, but you totally miss the opportunity to display the gospel, to display what Jesus did for you, to set aside what you have and you could take for your own gain, but no, it's not that, to give it away for others and point to Jesus who did that for you, that we'd be a people that proclaim and display the gospel with our lives. That's what the gospel's supposed to do in us. Sadly, what happens is we often stop seeing the needs of the world around us and we start seeing people as stepping stones in the pursuit of a little bit more. And actually in Ecclesiastes 5, it gets worse from there as far as what greed does and that little bit more mindset does. Here's verse 10. The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. Habel. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. The pursuit of a little bit more is like trying to satisfy your thirst with salt water. Like the more and more you consume, the thirstier you get. It never satisfies. It never quenches your thirst. 
I ask the question, how much is enough? You say, oh, just a little bit more. But, but really, they're like, how much is enough? Oh, just a little bit more. And what he's telling us here is you will say that to the day that you die. That you'll just keep saying a little bit more. Oh, okay, I got that, but just a little bit more. Okay, I got that now, but just a little bit more and just a little bit more. You'll say that to the day that you die without any satisfaction. Verse 10 is simple. Verse 11 he builds on this a little bit, and I want to make sure you understand what he's saying here, because he says, when good things increase, like if all of a sudden you were to experience a windfall of cash, right? when good things increase, if you were to experience a windfall of cash, let's just play out this scenario a little bit. What would happen? What would happen? Notice this word there. He says, the ones. I read this like five times and totally missed this and like misread it. Because I kept reading it as the one. The one who consumes them will multiply. I'm like, well, that sounds like a good thing. Like when good things increased, if I consume them, I'll multiply. Notice the, the word there. There's an S there. The ones. The ones who consume them multiply. What's he saying? I'll ask you, like, have you ever just watched the lives of like the insanely wealthy what do you notice? Like beyond like the nice cars and the new clothes and like the fancy things, what else do you notice? People. People everywhere flocking to them. Everybody's got a need. Everybody's asking for a favor. Everyone wants a slice of the pie. The ones around them when there's increase, the ones around that person with increase, they multiply and want to consume them. And that's why he's saying here, like for the person that experiences a windfall of cash, they think their life's going to get better. But what ends up happening is they have to spend so many hours now of their life, they'll stay up all night just looking at their wealth and making sure that it doesn't disappear. Because what they're afraid of is if they close their eyes for a second, it'll all disappear. It'll be gone. I've been having a lot of people this past week ask me, you know, if I'm going to play another song this week, maybe do a little dance on the stage. If you missed that last week, you can go back and watch it. I gave myself like a six out of 10, maybe. I got no song for you today, but I'll quote a song, at least the name of a song. But it's really true. Like what Notorious B.I.G. and Diddy said back in 1998, mo money, mo problems. Come on, where's my generation at? You're in your 40s. You're with me. That's true. Because who's the one in this text peacefully sleeping? There's a sweet sleep to their life. It's just the honest worker. Assuming that he's being paid a livable wage, the honest worker with a simple life who makes enough to put some food on the table. We think a little bit more is going to make us happy, and it doesn't. You're never satisfied by it. And more money, more problems. I want to get to the heart of the issue here. Let's do like a deeper dive. Because the heart of the issue, and I've already kind of said this, right? Like, like money, possessions, wealth, in and of themselves, like that isn't the problem. It's the love of those things. It's the, the pursuit of accumulation of those things that's the problem. 
Like go back to those verses, 10, 11, 12. Can we put those verses back on the screen here? Like just take note of verses 10, 11, and 12. I think we'll get it here. Got it for me? Just look, like, look, verse 10, right? Key words, like the one who loves and whoever loves. Verse 11, when good things increase. Verse 12, the abundance of the rich, right? It's not that money and possessions and things like in and of themselves is evil. It's the love of money. It's the pursuit of accumulation that is evil, right? Money and wealth are not evil. In fact, some of you, you may not know this, like it's actually a spiritual gift that God has given some of you in this room that God has made you supernaturally gifted at managing money and at making money. And his desire in giving you that gift is that you will use that gift to glorify him, to build up his church and to bless other people. Like what you have, like God has made you to do that incredibly well. One of my friends who is like more wealthy than I can even imagine and like understand is one of the most generous individuals you'll ever meet. And one of the things he says often about money is he says, I just, I knew this, like God gave me a gift but I also knew that there was a danger to it. And I've always known that the only antidote for greed is generosity. And so the way that I keep myself in a healthy spot is I just, I just give it away. And I've watched him do that with millions and millions and millions. See, money is this God-given gift given to each of us in different ways, different amounts for us to use to bless others. It's an incredible gift. It's a horrible God. But when all of a sudden money becomes what we worship, it's what we orient our lives around, we need to understand this. These are Paul's words to Timothy. He says, the love of money, again, note, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. It's the love of money. It's the relentless pursuit of it that leads to injustice and oppression. It doesn't satisfy. It pierces a person with many griefs. And by craving it, some have wandered from the faith. Some have wandered from the faith. Some have wandered from the faith. Because of money? Didn't Jesus warn us about this? All right, he talked about like the parable of the four soils, right? That as the word of God goes out for some, it's like water off a duck's back. It just kind of skips off. No effect, no fruit, nothing. That's soil number one. Soil number two is a shallow response, a quick reception of that word. Yes, I believe. And as quickly as it came, it, it burns out because there's just there's, there's no root. There's no, no depth to it at all. That's soil two. Do you guys remember soil number three? The word of God goes out. The seed is planted in ground. The roots go down. The stock comes up. It looks like life. And what did Jesus say about that soil and about that plant? He said, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth and desires for other things enter in, choke out the word and make it unfruitful. It looked good. From the very beginning, it looked exactly like the fourth soil, the good soil. The plant 
shot out of the ground. It looked great, but so did weeds that grew up around it and entangled and choked it out, making it unfruitful. And its place was no better than soils one or two. The deceitfulness of wealth. Right? Wasn't it the rich young ruler who came to Jesus who was ready to follow him wherever he wanted him to go, except he was unwilling to part with his riches? Remember what Jesus said after he walked away? Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Riches aren't an advantage spiritually. No one can serve two masters since he will either hate one, love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I remember some years ago, Tim Keller pointed this out for me. But he said, he's like, you know, by, by any count, you know, and I've checked this on a few other sources, like if you look at the amount of times that Jesus talked about money, generosity, anxiousness about possessions, things like that. It's one out of every three times Jesus opened his mouth as we see it recorded in scripture that he talked about those things. He talked about money, generosity, possessions, things like that a lot. It's interesting though, because as much as Jesus talked about it, in probably 18 years now of ministry, I can count on one hand the number of times I've had somebody share with me the sin struggle of greed. Which means either one of three things. Either one, Jesus talked about money too much. Two, there was a sin struggle and a greed issue back then that isn't an issue now. Or that there was a pervasive sin issue in our culture and nobody wants to talk about it. Which one do you think that is? I think Jesus wants to do a work in us, church. I think we need to talk about it. And so here's a question. I'm going to kick back to your connection groups this week, right? We do life with one another. This is how we grow and flourish best. Take this question back to group this week. If others were to see like full details of like what you spend money on, would they say that you're generous? Like ask yourself that question and answer that in your connection group. If others were to see what you spend your money on in a given week, would others say that you're generous? The only antidote I know for greed is generosity. But he continues on. There is a sickening tragedy that I've seen under the sun. Wealth kept by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture. So when he fathered a son, he was empty handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry with his hands. This too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain from struggles for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. I'll pause again. As he, right, we, we pursue this a little bit more reality because we think that it guarantees our comfort. 
that a little bit more will put us in the driver's seat of life, will establish and kind of cement our position, our status in the world. The reality is money constantly overpromises and underdelivers. The final picture and warning of Ecclesiastes 5, this, like, this text has given us a lot of different pictures of, of life and how it plays out. Here's the picture. It's of a father that worked his whole life to try to accumulate a great inheritance to be able to pass off to his son. And this happens, right? Wanted to pass off this great inheritance off to his son. And unfortunately, in the midst of a bad investment, he lost it all. So instead of being able to hand off this inheritance to his son, instead of being able to end his life in comfort, happy, joyful, he ends his life angry, sick, and frustrated. Here's the point that the teacher's trying to make. Your money will leave you at some point. Whether in your 40s, 50s, 60s, or on your deathbed, your money will leave you. You should hear that and think about what you're investing in. I would not invest myself in something that will leave you. I would invest yourself in something that will never leave you. Someone who will never leave you. This passage is really important for everybody in the room to hear. And so please, like everybody, like receive these words. But in particular, I just want to say a quick word to the parents in the room. Parents, what is the most important gift that you want to give your kids? What is the most important gift that you want to give your kids? And I know that you're going to say like, oh, it's Jesus. But why do you then spend so much of your time pursuing just a little bit more, a few more hours, a little bit bigger paycheck, some nicer food to put on the table, you are trying to physically provide for your family and not spiritually providing for your family. What's the most important thing, parents, that we can give our kids? And are you reflecting that with your life and how you spend your time, your energies? This quote ironically comes from a marriage book. And it's from the intro of that marriage book. But I remember reading this a few years ago and I was, I was stunned by how hard it hit me. But this is Francis Chan from his marriage book, You and Me Forever. He writes this. He says, even now I'm working to make sure that my family is set up for the future. When most people make that statement, they're talking about financial security for their last few years on earth. When I say it, I'm referring to the millions of years that come after that. People accuse me of going overboard, preparing for my first 10 million years in eternity. In my opinion, people go overboard in worrying about their last 10 years on earth. I'll let that sit for a bit. You can read that. So I've spent a lot of time here telling you what you should turn from. And I think that that's good. I think that's helpful in life. But I think it's always best if you're shepherding somebody to say like, not only like, what am I telling you to turn from? Let me tell you now what to run to, okay? So not just what to turn from, what to run to. Let's read these last few verses together, verses 18 through 20. This is what the teacher will do for us. Here is what I've seen to be good. Kind of reflecting on it all, 
This is what's good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during his few days of his life that God has given him, because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. For he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. See, it's not enough just to tell you what to turn away from, right? To turn away from the love of money and the pursuit of accumulation. Now I wanna tell you what to, to run after. And the answer is not that I want you to turn away from these things here and run toward poverty. I think it was Andrew Christman in our elder meeting that said something about like, you know, this isn't now the poverty gospel for you. That like every time you're sitting at your house and maybe you cook up a steak that you sit there and go, I feel horrible for this, right? Because every time you order that steak or eat that steak, you're mindful of the fact that there are kids in Africa that need food, right? And I do want to be mindful of the needs that exist around us. But the mindset here is not to run so far from this that you now just like live under this constant weight and guilt of like, I, I need to give more and more away and more and more away. Because actually what he's telling us to pursue here isn't to run away from just the wealth and, that, and then to run to poverty. He's actually saying to run away from these things to enjoyment. And I just found that interesting. Right, that we should stop focusing on what we don't have, but recognize what we do have and delight in it. Yes, to recognize what we do have and seek to give as much of it away as possible, but at the same time to also to delight in God's provision for us and his care for us. It's actually in that you are able to enjoy the stake, Right? because it's not some status symbol. It's not something that you're pursuing and wanting more and more. You're able to see God's goodness and providing it and giving that gift to you. The opposite this morning of the direction that we should go is not poverty. It's actually enjoyment. It's contentment. Not focusing on what we don't have, but focusing on what we do have, giving as much away as we can and delighting in what we have. Because when you begin to just recognize what God has given you, when you begin to look at it, not through like, uh, I think the word would be like a, like a minimalist mindset or, or through the, the mindset, this lens of like a poverty mindset that I don't have anything. If you stop thinking of yourself as like on the end where you don't have enough, but you begin to recognize I have been given more than enough that there's enjoyment, that there's joy. How does one get enjoyment? Like where does that start from for us? It's in letting go of the things of this world that don't satisfy and taking hold of the one who does. Just look at these words here of Hebrews 13, five. Keep your life free from the love of money and be satisfied with what you have. For he has himself said, I will never leave you or abandon you. If you want a right relationship with your possessions, with your stuff, if you even want the ability to enjoy what God has given you, it starts with a right relationship with God. The only way to enjoy the things of this world is to start with a right relationship with God. 
to not worship those things in and of themselves, but worship him and let everything else fall into place, rightful place around him. So you're not tethered to it, like that's where your joy is found, but you're able to live with open hands to give away and to enjoy freely, but delighting in it all because God is the giver of everything. Does that make sense? And I'm not talking to like non-Christians this morning, like those in the room that don't have a relationship with God, like, oh, a right relationship with God will make you right with your money and have you, give you a right relationship with your money. I'm talking to my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. That if you find yourself in an unhealthy spot in regards to your possessions, I don't have any other tip for you to get that right other than a right relationship with God will bring you into a right relationship with your stuff. And so what you gotta do is you gotta stop grabbing and try to have the best of both worlds. How do I hold on to all of this and yet hold on to God? You have to let go of the world with this hand so that you can fully take hold of the one who truly satisfies. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us. We can often get so fixated on what we don't have and how to get more that we don't recognize what we do have and how to give it away. Or to recognize even what we do have and that you've given it to us to enjoy. And so I don't need to sit under a cloud of guilt in it, but I can enjoy it. For God, honestly, I don't trust my heart. I sometimes don't trust my ability to, to even recognize the difference. And so I do, I pray for wisdom for us to be able to look at all of our things and to live with it all like in open hands and say, God, it's yours, not mine. And as you lead and guide us in our lives, would you be the one that dictates what happens with our bank accounts? Because you do, ultimately. And would you dictate the houses that we live in? Because we surrender it all to you. Would you dictate the cars that we drive and the things that we do in our leisure and how we spend our money, God, because it's yours, a gift given to us to enjoy, but to also be generous. Well, we love you and praise you. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.